All aboard. No, all aboard the hype train. All aboard the hype train. Stacked episode 29. <laughs> Chris, Chris, get off the top of the train. Chris, you're on. You're you're taking your shirt off and throwing in circles. <laughs> what? Why are you doing this? All aboard the freaking hype train. It's me, Wario, driving the, fl- the flinking train. Get it? Get take that alcohol out of his hand. Wow, what a cool... That was probably the coolest intro yet. Welcome, everyone, to Stack Episode 29. We're now the second episode into this new year of 2021. We're still in 2020. We're recording the the first, last episode, and this episode. We're recording them back-to-back. So we're still stuck in 2020. How is it, guys? Two weeks in? What are we thinking? Pretty good? Pretty not not good? I mean... (laughs) It was I mean, all good January until the last second. Last year was pretty amazing, yeah. I gotta say. You know, no, it so wasn't. you can never really tell a year's quality by the first month. You know, I know Chris and I had a pretty good January. Yeah, twenty twenty, but Kobe died. That was February. Oh, was it? All right, then. January. Oh no, 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 it was January. It was January. Okay. But Parasite right? won Best Picture in February, so. So, so me. So maybe it, maybe it all wasn't for nothing. So, but Green Book Two is winning this year. That's <laughs> is Green Book Two coming out this year? <laughs> yes! yes. Okay. Get ready to see that in theaters. Bohemian right, yeah, Rocket no. Man's also coming out. That's that's the crossover <laughs> between the crossover concert conference concert film. All right. So as you heard, the boys are here. We're all back. The We're boys all back are back in this. Ethan, Brand, Chris. We're Can here. you place the boys are back in town right now? No, that's copyright. <laughs> You, how about you sing it? Sing it for us. Never, never, the new day. The boys are back in town. Boys boys are back in town. The boys. The boys. All right. But guess what? We're not here to talk about 2021. We're actually here to talk about. Shut up. We're doing the episode now. We're not here to talk about an upcoming year. We're here to talk about a decade past. We are now going to start doing this thing probably once a month where we're going to analyze like what we did with the best films of 2020. We're going to do what we think are the most quintessential films of that decade. And we're starting with the 2010s. So fellas, what it was, it was hard enough to pick movies for a best of the year. What was it like going in for the most quintessential three films for an entire decade. It was wickety whack, bro. Oh, for <laughs> listeners, Brandon's hat oh. is sideways right now. He's he's going cra- he's going uh, straight baller right now. Listen, we're yeah. embracing a new year, a new uh-huh. me for now. <laughs> I'm oh my god! I'm Shut up! I'm we're joking. still in 2020. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> but I mean, how did I approach this list? It was very difficult because. There are so many great films, and of course, the ones that are sticking in my mind most are the films that led up to the 2020s, you know, like the films from 2017 to 2019, I feel like are some of the best films we've gotten, whether they were blockbuster movies or indie films, I really connected to a lot of them, you know what I mean? So, I mean, it was hard because I looked back at the beginning of the decade, I'm like, I only can choose three. And none of the films at the beginning of the decade really spoke to me that much and like stuck in my high praises throughout the whole decade. 
it was like around the middle of the decade and maybe this is because when i was a teenager and was like watching 50 to 100 films to 200 films a year at that point that i was like starting to see more than just what i was like comfortable with at that point mm-hmm. or maybe it was just that the films of the latter half of the decade are just better so yeah oh. chris how would you yeah. decipher this for me it was kind of like what were the main question i asked myself was like what were the biggest events throughout the 2010s or biggest like cultural shifts or anything like that that really spoke to me um so i wanted to pick films that kind of reflect that 10 years of life for me and like whether that's on a person i tried to like distance my personal self but kind of think like what were the three films that i would say are most representative of how the world shifted or was shaped in 2010s um, and just like the things that fascinated me most. Um, and yeah, I'll get into that once we start talking, but I think we we're all going to have some really great picks. I mean, the idea is we have 10 years to pick from and we're probably going to go for the best of the 10 years. So yeah. I think we'll have a great selection this week. Yeah. I'm sort of on the same page with you guys where I didn't necessarily like, I didn't choose three films, with like the, my favorites of the year, you know, I, I want, I chose films that really like mirrored what this debt like this past decades like culture politics achievements in filmmaking achievements in the industry brandon's standing up on a chair right now he's like looks looking like he's about to dive off oh nope there he goes okay he look he's okay uh but yeah so it's it's gonna be i these films don't necessarily click together <laughs> you know there's not really a uniform sort of thing for this crazy decade because so much stuff happened both speak for yourself inside and outside of the film industry you know but uh yeah so without further ado let's get into the picks but first let's of course run down the rules of the show once a week we set a topic or theme and go our separate ways to construct our own three film stack then after a week we come back here on the podcast and share our own stacks one film at a time then at the end of the show, we will mix and match our nine films to make the ultimate decision on what quintessential three film stack we are checking out of this hypothetical video store. Brandon, yeah, you have the immense honor. Do you realize how big of an honor this is that you get to kick off the best of the decade, the 2010s stacked podcast with your first pick? Yeah, I guess that's pretty cool. Okay, then go for it. Uh... <laughs> Uh, I kind of forgot. This. <laughs> Wait, were we supposed <laughs> to do a list? Shit. Come nah. on. No, no, no. Get on with it. As I said, I, I picked a lot of more recent films. Uh, apology. I might change one throughout the course of the podcast, but my first film mm-hmm. is has first in the title. It's first reformed, baby. First man. Okay. No, no, first no, 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 no. <laughs> first, right, first reformed. Okay. Oh, immediately disappointed looks. I am not even looking at you. That's I'm exactly. So yeah. I'm disappointed. <laughs> what? I thought there was just you know? as disappointing as a look is no look at all. All straighter. We talked about him a little bit on the last podcast, and this is a film that I saw in theaters, and it completely blew me away. I think it was 2018, 2019, 2018. Right. Right. 2018. And this is a film about Ethan Hawke's character, who's a priest grappling with the privatization of his church, as well as the fact of 
his own faith and how that is tested by people around him in his community, as well as how the climate is going and how the world is. And it is a very despair-ridden film. This is by no means a happy feature, but it is one that I think captures this evolving perspective that the 21st century has uh, accompanied us with. Like the 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 internet's uh, expansion, as covered in a film from 2010, The Social Network, has led to things and immense knowledge being spread. Some of it is false information, and some of it is very real information, but often the two get discombobulated. And in a sense, people are left lost and looking for faith. And I'm not a religious person. My friends know this. I don't love religious film too much. Um, but First Reformed really struck a chord with me. I grew up Catholic, so I, I kind of got like that, the same vibe of growing up in this like church small community. And seeing, seeing this character go through a transitionary process as he learns more and starts to question more about religion, about the people at, at power here, uh, and about his own faith, it really brings about a lot of good questions about humanity in this new age, uh, in this new inf information age. Because even though this film takes place in a small town, and by no means did I grow up in a small town, it, it still was relatable and fascinating to watch. Like I felt like I was transported, even though it was a realistic location, to like New England where the film takes place. And like from beginning to end, I was like involved. I was never taken out of the film. I know that's not going to be the same for Ethan, but I still very much love the film. And I think it captures a lot of the despair that people were feeling in the back half of 2010s. Yeah. Great film. Great, great, great film. It's, something that does need to be addressed in that decade of how do people of faith handle their faith in a world where religion has become so tied to like uh corporate like corporate mindsets and like how corporations are sort of so self-destructive to our planet you know and you see ethan hawk go on this journey as you know, a reverend and how he deals like with this anger and like, and characters who uh, think about this stuff in a nihilistic and extremist way, you know? Um, I, I, a lot of people have made comparisons that this is kind of like sort of a taxi driver kind of like movie. I mean, it's Paul Schrader, you know, he wrote Taxi Driver. Paul Schrader is an amazing writer. I think my favorite parts of the movies were like the conversations the characters have, you know? Um, like Brandon said, uh, what took away this film for me was that ridiculous. It's not rid ridiculous. ridiculous. It's not it's, ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. And it takes me out. It, it breaks the rules of the world that's been established this whole film and takes you on this goofy ass meditation sequence, horrible green screen. I so pathetic. Sorry. It's pathetic, but I still love the movie regardless of it. Ethan Hawke, maybe my favorite performance of his? I think I'd say yes. I think it's my favorite performance of him. It's uh, up there. My, my namesake, by the way, everyone. Uh, great Daddy film. Hawk. Yeah. And something that does need to be talked about this decade. Chris? Yeah, I think this is like one of those films like it's, I think the one word I would use to describe this film is sublime. It's very under the surface and in the best way possible. There's this line in the film that 
kept coming back to me after I watched it. Um, it reads, will God forgive us for destroying his creation? Reminds me a lot of Steve Buscemi's line in Spike, <laughs> in Spike It's 2, which is... Um, it's quite uh, similar films, actually. <laughs> what is the name? What was the what was that line in Spike It's 2? Um, well, God, does God stay in heaven? Because he lives, too in fear, fear. lives in fear of what he's created. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, anyway, back to this movie. Like, yeah, I, kind, I very much agree with Ethan in the sense of like, it's so like... It's an important film in the sense of how it comments on this like weird interconnection that for whatever reason has arisen between politics and um you know politics corporation and uh religion as though like these things are meant to be intertwined even though it you would think they wouldn't um it's a deeply existential and almost metaphysical piece i think it's like it very much like it has that paul schrader sense of existentialism to it that I think you'll find in like Mishima, for example. Yeah. Um, Ethan, I I do agree with you in the in what you said about the uh the infamous flying sequence. Yeah. Um you didn't it did take it did take me out of the movie. I'm sorry, it did. I can't I can't sit you can't argue with that. It took me out. I can't I can't I can't control that. But, but I can try. No, just kidding. <laughs> but, but yeah, I Brandon's mean, like, like watching the movie with you. He's like, stay in it, Chris. He's like putting your face up to the TV. You're it's like not it's being clockwork taken orange. Out. Clockwork orange, yeah. like putting the things on my eyes. Um, but yeah. Like, you will <laughs> like the scene in this movie. The, the ending of that film However, haunts me. It's amazing. That like, I'm, I won't spoil it, but like there's an, there's, imagery in this last sequence that's just so like visceral and explicit the film i'm talking about the film's not very like it's not a comfortable watch right and it's not very destabilizing and it's not even a colorful watch but the starkness of the blacks and like the blacks and whites that are used throughout the film like are so like good like i've never seen a grayer film be more beautiful (laughs) (laughs) but yeah it's like i that last scene like like always just throws me for a loop and like you know it really just makes you think like oh fuck like what the and then you're you're left kind of like to your own devices to kind of dissect and interpret it for yourself and i think for a director to be able like directors that are able to like holistically create a ambiguous ending that still leaves a lot of doors open but closes its narrative very tightly Mm -hmm. is something i think can be very difficult I think only like great, the best directors are able to do that. And I think Paul Schrader does it really well in here too. So yeah, I think it's a great pick, Brandon. Thank you. Okay. Starting off strong. Start off strong. Chris, what is your first film? Brandon's going to like this pick. Well, Brandon's going to like all my picks, but he's going to like this one a lot. So Brandon started off with a commentary on like, the this interconnectivity between religion and politics and truth corporation and truth um i'm gonna switch the dial a bit we're going into social economics um and how materialism and stuff like that has shaped the world 2019 film you saw it coming bong joon ho parasite ah do i have a double stack by any chance can i decide wow can i decide can you decide i I, you'll come back to it i need a minute well Mm. maybe no, once we start talking no about it, let's see. I, no all right let's all right let, i've well, got a, let i've got break. another choice that i have in mind so it's no double over. stack no guys are you sure yes because okay. although i think it is i would 
Let's see what happens. Okay, let's see. Um, <laughs> okay, let's start the discussion. So, um, directed by Bong Joon Ho, 2019 film, this one best picture, best international feature, best writing. It was a whole thing, and the world was. It was one of the happiest moments of 2020 the when only. this film won best picture. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, this is a film following the Kim family who are on the cusp of poverty in contemporary South Korea. Um, they begin to infiltrate a um a much more elite and prestigious family in the social economic ladder and eventually they start replacing um you know some of the workers in their household eventually insanity ensues i can't get into that what this film is really about and what happens without severely spoiling it so i'm gonna leave it there because seeing this film blind was one of the greatest experiences i've ever had in the theater um, Brandon knows because he was looking at me when the big re- a big reveal happened and he saw my jaw hit the floor and me like my me my posture like get raised up and yeah like wow what a masterful film I mean like just perfectly executed through every part of its narrative its characters its cinematography its editing it's so precise and beautiful um, but like beyond that its themes were incredible like talking about how um, you know people from different uh areas of the social economic ladder treat each other how we view one another as people and how for whatever reason our economic s- status seems to for whatever reason determine your value in co- in com- contemporary society that's a very depressing thing to talk about but it's presented in this incredibly entertaining but very thought-provoking way um and yeah it's just like it's so expertly crafted i feel like every frame in this film was planned out Actually, no, I know every frame of this film was planned out yeah. he has because book. I have a book that's <laughs> oh, that so cool. It storyboards the entire film all the way through perfectly. And it's all of Bong's drawings or whoever's storyboard artist was. But it was a it's a fantastic film. Um, Brandon, I remember when we first watched this movie, I it I wasn't very warm on the ending. It's grown on me a lot, and that I've taken away that as my critique. So now it's one of my perfect films. Oh. So that's a rare yeah thing. i mean what do you guys think? i mean brandon this is your what number five favorite movie Six, yeah something like that yeah it's in my it's in my top 10 for sure um this is my favorite film of the 2010s and you might be wondering like why didn't you double stack with chris if this is like one of your favorite movies i'm like well let's see like i want to see i want to make our list like kind of branch out from the norm i'm not saying we can't have like similarities but also, maybe I'll want to use Parasite later, and I don't want to lock it in yet. Like, because I know the lock, a double stack means locking it in. And the thing is with Parasite is this movie is just a perfect encapsulation of what the 2010s were leading to. Like, paired with First Reform, that's like a perfect double feature, in my opinion. You've got this film that tackles classism and sociopolitics from the perspective of multiple different classes, and it doesn't make anybody out to be the villain. But it, it makes the idea out to be a villain. The, the way that people have sort of treated each other because of a system that isn't real, really built on human kindness or connection. And, and that's like very lacking in society today because of the internet. Um, and that, I mean, that, that barely plays a role within this movie, but technology does in a sense. Yeah. And, and I think, oh, sorry. go ahead. Know, well, and, and, and uh, First Reform does that too. But what Parasite does is it, it takes it from a different perspective. And it's a very funny film, but it's a very dramatic mm-hmm. film. But you can you can care for every character in this movie, whether they're rich or poor. You can relate to them 
and their struggle, their struggle to be a good family member, their struggle to want to be something that they're not. I mean, this is, I mean, it's literally, it's one of those most perfect movies. I'm not quite ready to say that yet because I've only had two movies that I think are perfect. But Mm. it is one that has, I think, spoken to me. And I think that captures that divide that you're seeing in this country, not just our country, but like the whole world. This is a very universal movie. Like it's not just East versus West sort of thing. This is a very Mm -hmm. universal one. Yeah, and I think I'm glad you brought up the comparison to First Reform because I think one thing that these films are united in is their use of environmentalism as a part of their themes. Yeah, it's not the especially in First Reform for sure, but like it's slightly more sublime in Parasite. But like one example I think is like obviously in First Reform you have the environmental aspect of it because you know God creation, His creation being the Earth. Yeah. Um, but with well, but with um, for example, say um, with Parasite. You have a one of the great examples, I think, is there's a line where it's there's this moment where rain is pouring down across South Korea. It's a, it's almost like a monsoon. Um, the poor family's home um, is very much in shambles and everything. Meanwhile, the rich family are sitting cozy up in their little house and they say the line like, um, oh, wow, like the rain's great. Like, yada, yada, yada. Like, it's so relaxing. And then the next morning, while the poor family is doing everything they can to piece together their broken home the rich family's like oh wow the rain was so fortunate we now have clear skies for the birthday party so it's it's almost like the difference in perspective that even the environment causes within the social economic ladder like it's almost so interconnected with everything that we exist in now i don't know i think that's just a really interesting like like comparison between the two films um ethan what do you think about parasite i mean you two sort of like tackled everything perfectly. I think uh, one thing that I, we're going to be talking a lot about this decade is sort of like this sort of revitalization of Marxist thought in the popular culture sphere. I feel like that's uh, the the two, the 2010s sort of reinvigorated it for a lot of people, especially our generation during this decade, you know? And uh, I mean... And I think a lot of that has to do with the success of films like Parasite, you know? Um, Yeah, everything you talked about, like, it's classes, uh, not so underlying themes, you know? It's quite prevalent, but uh, it's perfectly captured by Bong Joon-ho. And I just think the most impressive thing about this movie to me is how fucking meticulous it is, you know? Like, that, that book blew me away when I looked at it at your apartment, and it just fucking makes sense because... Everything has a purpose in this movie. Every single mm-hmm. prop, you know, every detail in the set, every camera angle and shot, you know, it all, mm-hmm. you, someone could write a 300 page book on what everything in this movie means, you know, yeah. because yeah. that's how well thought out it, it was by Bong Joon-ho and it deserved everything it got at the Oscars. I'm so happy that this was like the the foreign film to sort of like break, break that barrier. mold and win yeah. win best picture you know uh and yeah i completely understand why it's one of the most significant movies of this decade i god damn all right i don't two? i don't know man you don't know i mean i damn. just i i think it's never mind well i'll, I'll talk to you about it after okay the I, well okay oh, okay <laughs> all right uh, two really great thought-provoking films 
to kick off the podcast, but I'm going to change gears a bit. Oh, dear God. What are you going to do? Uh, Sonic the Hedgehog. So, no, just kidding. Sonic the Hedgehog. No, that's a 2020 movie. Anyways, Brandon. Maybe next decade, buddy. <laughs> maybe next best of decade. Um, no. This is a movie that sort of resembles like the highlight of what the film industry was like in this decade Instant and what family. blockbuster filmmaking yes this is the poster child for it and the thing that's kicked it all off yeah uh it is a 2012 film yeah directed by joss whedon it's the first avengers oh not captain america the first avenger it is the avengers Avengers Assemble and for all you foreign audiences out there. For all you fucking foreigners. Chris, was it Avengers Assemble for you when you saw it in Hong Kong? No, it was the Avengers. Yeah, so shut up, Brandon. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Who are you calling? Who are you calling? Mom, come pick me up. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah. No, but... um. Everyone knows exactly where they were when they saw this movie for the first yep, time. I remember you know what I'm too. saying? I was at the saw Century it in the 16. Church. You saw it at a church? No, I'm joking. Oh, <laughs> I was at the Century 16 on 13th South, I think. 1300 South, not 13th South. Uh, with my boys, my, my, my friends in middle school and friend of the show, Milo. He, he saw it with me for the first time. And then we got went to Wasatch Pizza. But that, okay, that has nothing to do with the film. Uh, <laughs> While I don't think this film has aged as well as the rest of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, yeah. I do think it has to be acknowledged as, for better or for worse, the catalyst. It's the film that sort of the catalyst, yeah, of blockbuster filmmaking in this decade and probably for the foreseeable future. You know, future for the foreseeable future, Mike Sully. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, but you guys really put look him like down. Him to put him down. <laughs> put him down. Put me down. Um, this film is just—it's a load of fun. What can I say? Uh, it was—it was insane seeing a crossover like this on the big screen. Brandon, you talked about crossovers. I think uh, during After Hours, you talked about the appeal of crossovers, mm -hmm. and I—and this was one of the biggest ones. We were like. It was insane to see someone do this, have each of these films set up, and then a payoff of all of these characters, main characters in their own films, come together in this huge film that actually worked Okay, made a billion dollars. I remember it was insane seeing that it made a billion dollars, you know? Because there weren't had, many films to that point that had made like over a billion, right? No, there was like not 10. many. There's like... There's like 20 now, you know, since this came out. But like, it was like Avatar, Titanic, The Dark Knight. Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park, yeah. And like, one of the Lord of the Rings movies, I think. Oh, yeah? Okay. Yeah, it was a very small and exclusive list. And to have a film that the box office receipts for the past Marvel Cinematic Universe was good, but not huge, you know? Each each movie was like in the 700 to 800 million uh, range of profit and this one i remember it was just a shock to the world of how many people were so interested in this idea that now you see it you see people now studios each studio wants a cinematic universe you know each studio yeah. wants to build up to a crossover film because they see how much of 
like of a profit they can make off of that because people are super fascinated by the premise of a crossover. I w- has anybody ever written like I I would love to like read something about the p the appeal and like an analysis of the crossover, you know? And like, I'm sure there's like a psychoanalytic take you can go you can uh, yeah. go there's I, a path on that i feel I, like i think it's just exciting to see characters you're familiar with in two different things yeah pushed together because for example um there, there's a backing between like the avengers uh, the, uh, the, the avengers were a comic book right so it's like no. a natural oh you know, yeah no it wasn't <laughs> no, <laughs> uh, <Yeah>. no. <laughs> But that's like a natural transition because that's what's expected. You know, that's how the comic book is. But like with with other cinematic universes, like for example, I'll go back to this. Like CG animation, let's let's do Nickelodeon. They they crossed over Jimmy Neutron and uh Timmy Turner. And one is a CGI character and one is a 2D character. And that is super exciting because it's like you get to see your character interact with another one of your favorite characters. And not only that, but cross over into the other one's universe and like sort of play with a new and unique story that you really never could have expected. Like, you know, it it brings about amazing possibilities. And it's that instant gratification that you get out of seeing characters you love interact or characters you love interact with the worlds around them that allows there to be like this this excitement surrounding it like it's it's almost indescribable but it's it's a it's a tad about nostalgia it's got to be right right yeah chris yeah i mean like when i like gosh i don't even know how to describe it but it's like when i first saw this film like i had no idea like the the repercussions that would happen as a result of this film's existence i think like you know, with when I first saw the Avengers, it was just so like foundational for the industry. It changed so much about how our industry functions nowadays. You know, like you said, with the universe, with like every every um, studio now wants their own um, universe that they can immerse all of their characters in and whatnot. So it's like, you know, back in 2012 when I signed that theater and watched this movie and I fell in love with the Avengers and everything, I never would have known. I never could have known that like you know, this would start one of the biggest, like, financial and cultural shifts in, like, the film industry, like, in many, many years. And, like, I mean, like, you know, whether or not you think that that, like, as a person, like, do you think that that was a good thing or a bad thing for the industry? That's too big a call for me to make. And seeing as I'm a big fan of the Marvel characters, I'm very biased. Yeah. But at the same time, like, you know, you can't deny that that was a foundational moment for the industry regardless of whether or not you like it or not. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, I think that's why this is a very valid pick, even though it might look a little unorthodox to begin with. But yeah, I think it's very valid. You're, so You're right on that. Good pick. Good, Just, good pick, even. I, I mean, like, looking at the film, like, I, I remember seeing this opening night on, like, a Wednesday, uh, Wednesday evening, like a six or seven o'clock showing. And I had just gotten into the Avengers comic books, like, when I was eight or nine. So... And then and Mightiest Heroes came out. And like that was like when I really familiarized myself with comic book characters and comic books. And like I really attached myself to specific ones like Ant-Man and uh, Captain America. Those were my like two favorite heroes growing up, which is yeah. I think why Ethan and I initially got along because we could kind of relate <laughs> to in that respect. Yeah. Um, 
But I mean, the, the, seeing it on the screen, big screen and live action was like watching sort of a dream come true. But outside of that, it still was like a great film. Like I think it was one of my first like movies that I would consider like one of my favorites. Like this yeah, used to be in my top five. This used to be my number one film of all time. Really? When I saw it in seventh grade, I'm like, this is it. The number one film. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I mean, I think you were right in assuming that at like 12 or yeah. 13, right? Yeah, when you're, right. it's amazing when you're, when you're well, 12 or 13. Well, I mean, and I, I, it was amazing then, but because of the, I, I think because Marvel's branched out and made more original stories and grander spectacle films, it's like yeah. almost like narratively, everything's been surpassed in phase one because it's not just yeah, cookie so. cutter origin stories anymore. They have good themes, but they're just they're not as good as the the rest. And then the later films are like far more visually stimulating and exciting because of the buildup that's been created. But seeing that first yeah. one, I, I I've never been so like, other than like like Endgame, like a, like that event film. I've, I've I can't remember a time in my life before that there that was like that exciting and crazy. Being in the theater, it was like every seat was filled, like even the front row that nobody likes to sit in, and people were like cheering in the theater and like the character interactions were so perfect and unexpected and you were like watching a magnum opus being spread now eh, there's problems with the pacing significantly with that movie but yeah. um i mean i still hold on to that same excitement i felt even though i know there, there are portions of this movie that really don't work yeah yeah same here all right well there's my film Chris. I mean, not Chris. Brandon. Brandon. Who are you? Brandon. Yo, yo. What's Who up? Are you? Who are you? Where am I? All right. Talk about a movie. What? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna go a little different route. I'm gonna pick a 2013 film. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> you don't want me to. Right? <laughs> I guess I won't. Skip you know? it. <laughs> no, no, you're done. No. My turn. Next film. <laughs> no. No 2013 films. That was the rule. Really? <laughs> yep. Can I replace no, it? No, talk about 2013 okay. films. Okay, all right. <laughs> I, I, I was going to go the Bong Joon-ho route as well. Why are you giving me what confused looks, children? What came out in 2013? It, you know, it's Snow a little... Snowpiercer? Yes. Oh. Ah. Snowpiercer. Oh, okay. His talk first English language uh, production and his best so far, because, I mean, the only other one's Joe Okja, so... And, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And honestly, Snowpiercer is this, this, I think it's like the first draft of Parasite because it tackles classism from left to right, back to front sort of thing, but it also plays upon the environment. So it's kind of like a mixture of first reformed and, uh, Parasite in that sense, because it is very oh. much a film about classism, getting to the front of the train in life. And people putting each other down because they just have the power and the advantages early in life, you know. And then in the environmental message comes from humanity's arrogance. And that is still very much seen in the way people act within the train uh, between separate classes and different cars. Like there's like a, a certain attitude people have as this thing goes on. And I, I remember seeing this movie and thinking, as this goes on, I feel more and more inversed in the environment and like I feel cold during this and I feel disgusted. But at the same time, I feel moved by the characters in this film and their interactions with the world around them. This is, a, this is another film that's kind of like desperation based. And I, I don't want to like say like, 
the 2010s were hell. But like we're transitioning into this point in history where there's a lot of uncertainty. And how we deal with that uncertainty is through films about um, a very bleak certainty, such as with um, uh, Snowpiercer, Parasite, and First Reformed. Yeah, great movie. Also, uh, an adaptation of a graphic novel, something that you would see a lot of this decade, you know? Yeah. Um, this, this was such a great film. I, I, I'd say one of the best video game films, even though it's not based on a video game. Just the way the whole film is paced is like you're playing a great video game with your, these protagonists that you're following going from streetcar to street, uh, train car to train car, you know? Not streetcar. Streetcar named Desire to streetcar named Desire. No. Um, <laughs> each, each train car was sort of like a different level and sort of you learned new things about the characters or you saw like a new spectacle in each little action sequence. I, I just loved it. And yeah, Brandon, you nailed on the head with its environmental messages. And like Bong Joon-ho is a really good uh, director at making classist themes like be good, but not subtle, like visually, like literally having the sort of the chain of class be displayed as an actual train, you know, with yeah. You know, the lower class B in the back and the higher class in front, etc. Like a but visual metaphor. Visual metaphors. Lots of visual metaphors, Bong Joon-ho, that clever guy. Uh, yeah, fun time. I remember being so surprised when I saw this for the first time. I think I saw it, probably saw it at home, I think. I, I, I saw think it, it was like, theaters. it was very select theaters in 2013. And then it was like a uh, big wide release at home in 2014. And that's when I saw it, but still loved it regardless, you know. Uh, Chris, what do you think? Yeah, I think this is a fantastic film. I like Brandon, you nailed it on the head when you were talking about how like Bong's use the use of the train as a concept and just how like moving through the trains up to like the elite status, which is by the front, like just being able to like visually like visualize that that as a construct and use that to reflect upon how it works in real life. It's so interesting to just be able to like see th- basically what is a cacophony of our world like encapsulated into one singular train pretty much and like the compartments being like steadily growing and like how like grand each one is and like you know just being able to see that progression is so great i think that's that i think stuff like that is what makes bong's films so complex but also still very accessible there's i never feel like polarized by his films there's also a like religious extremism angle you could sort of take with the film in the sense of oh yeah this is like a version of noah's ark if if noah was like a terrible person (laughs) and instead of packing oh, two animals here, two animals here. He's like, no, we're going to put all these people near the back and then all these other people are going to live comfortably. And this is the first movie that I remember watching that really like made me like reconsider economics, the way we've been doing things, because I saw parallels. And I'm not saying that we should transition into a full such and such government or a full such and such economy, but it, mm-hmm. it shows that the system is broken in so many different ways and how are we going to repair it it's very overwhelming but it gives the viewer inspiration to think of solutions to those problems before it gets to be that bad right, right. fucking uh, Willy wonka too great inspiration Will- <laughs> <laughs> all right 
All right. Willy Wonka, whatever. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Great comparison. All right, Chris, take us in your second pick. Cool. All right. Well, my next one, um, we're switching back over to like very like contemporary themes um, addressed through film. And this was a real, this subject. Okay. So the subject that I chose was, as you guys know, I'm very passionate about this. It's like um, the black experience and identity politics. As you guys know, that's a big thing for me. And there were so many films, of course, to choose from. But the one that, and I kept going back and forth between like three, but I ended up choosing one because this was the most visceral experience I've had with this um, this concept. And it was basically the film that got me interested in, in this. And I think a lot of people kind of awoke into what's going on with this film. Um, it's a 2013 film directed by Ryan Coogler. Oh. Uh, it's his directorial debut, Fruitvale Station. Um, the other films that I was going to pick instead were either going to be Get Out or Blind Spotting, both of which are masterpieces. But I ended up going with this one just because of my personal connection to it. Mm-hmm. So this film tells the true story of the last day of uh, Oscar Grant, a real person who was murdered by the police in San Francisco on New Year's Day um, in 2009, I believe. Um yeah, so, wow, this was a very, very painful movie to watch and also very emotionally tiring film to watch. I remember the first time I saw it was in the Felino Theater when we were freshmen doing film aesthetics. I believe that was the class. Um, and that movie broke me. I remember just being so shell-shocked by it. And, like, you know, usually, like, at the screenings in the Felino, students, you know, they start to file out after um, a screening, you know, kind of, you know, just chatting with each other. Um, but I've never seen the Felino so quiet. Everyone walked out in complete silence and no one knew what to think or what to say, especially people who have never seen that film before. Um, and yeah, this was a great, great piece. I think like um, they do like Ryan Coogler, you know, now is directing Black Panther and Black Panther 2, both of which are arguably the biggest black experience films in the modern day. Like, you know, just in terms of accessibility and people knowing about it and everything. And yeah, this was his directorial debut and he did an incredible job. He made Oscar, he humanized Oscar Grant in this way that is so like understandable and beautiful. And like, I understood like he has had a rough life. He has a daughter, he has a wife. And like, you understand, you get to know him on a human level. And like, that's the important part. Cause like, it's almost like we're taking a step back from race for a second there. And we're getting to know this guy on a level that like, I know this guy, he is a human being. And then the fact that he was killed over nothing more than the color of his skin, it's outrageous, completely outrageous. And that's the reaction that you get out of it because you feel so upset and angry because you, you know, this guy almost. And like, you know, there's been a little bit of discourse about like whether or not um, the movie like deifies um, Oscar Grant as like something that like as something that he wasn't, but Mm. at the same time, the effect that this film had upon so many people and, the world's understanding of the black experience. And I think at least for my understanding of the black experience, like it really awoken me to something that I never, like, even though I was aware of it, I was never fully cognizant of how systemic of an issue it was until I saw this film. Um, and I don't know, like this, this really shook me. Like what, how about you guys? What was your experience like with this film? Yeah. Um, I think, I think we got to be careful with the word humanizes when we're talking about these sort of characters. I totally mm-hmm. see what you mean. Like, I think um, it humanizes Oscar in a sense where um, this this person has become such a big symbol mm-hmm. for a movement, you know? 
And yeah. I think that th- that sort of happens a lot to a lot, uh, so many black lives dur- like during this movement. It's like I think a lot of people used. I mean, last year, I think a lot of people used George Floyd's name yeah. without really knowing anything about it, you know? Exactly. And yeah. I think that's this film was trying to do that. Um, mm-hmm. I love that. I mean, this is going to be quite a significant film if we follow the career of Ryan Coogler and seeing, like, he's going to become one of the greats, I think. You know, he, he's, he's, he's playing the game. He's making the blockbusters, but he also keeps his own personal touch to all every film that he makes you know mm-hmm. um and you see that in this film with like i i feel like a little bit of neorealism you know it's a little slice of yeah. life um and it's just the movie's a ticking time bomb you know from the very beginning you know um and it's just it's be- it's a very it's a beautiful film beautifully tragic like you said when we watched in the felino uh it was it was just it was powerful it was very powerful Brandon? I had seen this movie before we saw it in the Felino, and I loved it then. And I thought, like, I mean, if you weren't attuned to the stuff that was happening beforehand, like, I totally, like, understand that. Because, obviously, uh, a lot of people either weren't in tune with the news or, like, obviously you were focused at different things at a different age. But for me, it was, like, I, I remember, like, I think it was the summer after Fruitvale Station came out, like in 2014, 2015. There were like images of all over online, and it was the first time where Facebook was starting to like censor content for like, because uh, they, they violated their guidelines because people posted videos and pictures of things happening. And that was like the first time that I think I became not, not just aware, but like physically like moved into action by the these problems that have faced like society for so long. And the problem is there's there's just so many roadblocks, and that I mean it's moved me into like the political atmosphere, into uh, journalism to find out the truth about things like this, because honestly, like that's the hardest thing nowadays, and to really get answers and find solutions is really important to me. Um, yeah, it's a very it's a very great film, very stark. Uh, Michael B. Jordan probably is one of his best performances. Um, I'd say so, and, and like there's not. This film does feel very neorealist in a sense, but it 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 never loses like its hope and optimism despite you knowing how cynical and bad the ending is. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I want to be careful with what I say here, but there is also a discourse about sharing videos of like black lives getting uh oh, yeah, killed. Yeah. And they I, show it at the end, right? Right. And not only that, but that's been going around since the, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement this year, mm-hmm. and it's kind of—I I, kind of want to like say—is it weird that the film? It's not the, that the film like obviously fetishizes this idea or tries to make it like like a spectator thing, but because we see it, I—I I, I don't want to see much more films like this. Like I don't want to see in twenty years a film about George Floyd. Like I feel yeah. like this would just it stands out so much that it like I I just want it to be like the representation and be special for what it is and what it captures. You know? No, I completely see what you mean. It's sort of like um Yeah, the, like that footage is very traumatic for a lot of people, you know? Um and I think 
it, the filmmakers have to be, you know, aware of that if they want, if they want to put that and sort of, that's sort of like forcing people into putting them into an uncomfortable situation, not sort of uncomfortable in a cinematic sense of like a horror movie or something like that. But this is like real world uncomfortable, you know, that just filmmakers have to be aware of. I think it, I don't know. It's not, I think it's used effectively in this film personally, but I can totally see if uh, people saw that ending as something as like glorification. Yeah. It's yeah, a, I think like um you know that's something I think we briefly talked about it in like maybe our film theory class or something cuz I I've, I've written about this film before I, I think at least twice and like um you know I think that's a very interesting part of the discourse and like it's definitely I definitely agree that like I don't want to see like a George Floyd film like 5 years from now or something like that cuz like you know this film already stands as the embodiment of what those films should be yeah it's like it, it's the explicit this is what happened here you go it would just feel like, like a cash grab and, and yeah and i don't i that. i would hate to disrespect like you know the the tragedy that was like all of those like murders and everything and like that's like you know um i would hate to just see that and i think um yeah it, it's great that this film exists but i think this is where Call it here, I think, and then just yeah. give give the there are the other resources. ways to tackle. Yeah, it doesn't have to be a biographical film. It could be like like I said, Blind Spotting and Get Out are great examples of contemporary ways to do this. Right. Um. And yeah, that's my that's my second pick. Awesome, awesome. Okay, so uh, my second pick. Uh, let's see, we're going we're going a little long on time here, so I'll I'll try to go go through it pretty quickly. But um, this is a film that I think perfectly resembles the relationship between content and form and sort of this uh, growth and accessibility in filmmaking that the tw- 2010s has offered filmmakers and how that has been able to express more diverse stories, you know, um, mm-hmm. from yeah, more s- stories that studios wouldn't necessarily ought, like tend to make because, you know, various reasons of, of the system and capitalism and everything like that. <laughs> but um this is a 2015 film directed by Sean Baker. This is his debut feature film, Tangerine. Uh, um, cool. Now, uh, recently I've, I've done some more digging on the film. Our friend Tori has shown me some articles about how this film doesn't really do a very good job at um, sort of depicting uh, the trans lifestyle towards the end of the film where it sort of shows some traumatic stuff that made a lot of people uncomfortable, a lot of tra- the people in the trans community uncomfortable, but it, it's a lot like uh, what we talked about with Soul, where I think it was just, I don't know, uh, it, it, it's directed by a heterosexual, cisgendered wh- white male, you know, but uh, from the research that I've done on the film, because I presented on it in a class, uh, he cooperated a lot with the trans actresses in this movie the main two they helped him shape the story really and the world of this these streets of hollywood you know um this is also a very neorealist film i believe like it's really grounded and you can see that in the technology it's shot in an iphone which is like it was insane at the time it was came out in 2015 you know 
uh, Brandon's just pogging. He's like, iPhones, buggers. <laughs> He's like, I can make movie on my phone. <laughs> I'm making movie right now. Yeah. <laughs> the stack movie. No, but I don't know. It's just like, I totally understand the discourse going around this film, but it, I feel like it is significant for the decade that it, like I said, with its con- its relationship of content and form, and how that's been able to make more diverse stories than what we've seen in decades past, you know? Have you guys seen Tangerine? No. Any thoughts? No. Movie thinks? I've, no. I've seen Sean Baker's other film, uh, Florida Project, which I really loved, um, which is also very similarly a very realist film. I don't think... Obviously, it's not all shot on an iPhone, but it, it does choose to do things that are very like independently based. And I yeah. do think that Tangerine brought about this new era of digital filmmaking and, and indie filmmaking because now you're starting to see like, uh, you know, films utilize the technology like iPhones to make features or utilize only specific like, like singular locations to broadcast its like message and topic. And also, yeah. it's a film about the queer LGBT community, right? This mm-hmm. is uh, this is something that Hollywood has been scared of forever to tackle in mainstream features. And yes, Tangerine is not mainstream, um, but in terms of like what we've been getting, it's like so much more than the two thousands, which just had like Brokeback Mountain and a little bit of J. Edgar, and uh, <laughs> that's about it. Yeah, of actually cisgendered characters playing trans people in the very right. few films about trans people exactly which is not okay but now here we get to see people with people who actually live that life have access to filmmaking technology and work uh with directors like sean baker to convey these stories exactly chris i know you you actually presented a lot on like this sort of technology in one of our film classes you know yeah i guess like the one thing i think i can add to this conversation is about how like you know because i haven't seen this film but one thing that like very much rippled throughout the industry and just the entertainment industry as a whole is like how this film proved that like going forward Film as an art isn't going to be completely reserved for people who went to film school, who know how to use an amazing camera, who know how to do all this crazy shit. Because now it's like you can make a film that's just as valid as any other with nothing more than your iPhone, a couple actors and a decent script or something. Or maybe not even a script if that's not your style. But like, yeah, it's like, you know, now we have like mediums like YouTube. We have, I hate to say it, but TikTok. We have all this other (laughs) stuff where like moving images are coming to life and being able to tell stories in a way that once seemed to be only reserved for the individuals that were able to afford it or yeah. or skilled enough to use those tools. But now it's a lot more accessible. And, you know, the world is shifting towards streaming. The world is shifting towards, um, you know, being like the accessibility of cinema is no longer something that is reserved. It's something that's accessible for everyone. And um, Tangerine was a fundamental piece in, what made that possible it was very much the figurehead in a way of what of the of the thing that enabled everyone to be able to pick up their phone and hit record and make a little something even if it looks like crap it's like it's still a movie yeah it's moving images that's all you ever need to make a movie so yeah i think this is like in that level at least and on top of all the other things that you guys were talking about but 
I, of course, I don't have any input on that because I haven't seen it. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a multitude of reasons why this film deserves to be recognized as one of the most significant of the 2010s because it shaped so much of what the 2010s became and what's going to happen going forward in the 2020s. Well said. Well said. All right. Let's get into this final round here. Let's run through it, Brandon, with your last pick. Our film. Our last one. <laughs> My last one. Yeah, not mine. Hey, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Uh, Maybe. Yeah, it could be. 2018. Blind spotting. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> I told you I didn't pick that, yeah. yeah. I came close. Yeah. This, but This movie, fantastic. I think, is another one where it's like, it Chapman alone. Hello. Uh, Woo, Carlos. The best thing to come out of Chapman, by the way. Yeah, uh, I agree. This movie is just so multi-layered and original and unique because it takes all of this knowledge that we have about not just the Black Lives Matter movement, but about racial relations in general as it goes back to like the 1980s and 90s and even some of the 60s, right? And you see this built-up anger and resentment and even like poser, like imposter syndrome between white people black people, Hispanics within one community in a very diversity of Oakland. And Oakland is so diverse. It's so split up between like all of these many different cultures and ideologies, but they, yet they also at the same time feel distinct. And like, there's a evolution going on, a transitioning as you will, but also there, there's a critique of the way that society, especially white society gentrifies areas and essentially kicks out the people who are uh, native to that land. And this is consistent through all of American history, but it's most recognizable today in the form of suburbs and such. And the way the film is able to tackle all of these racial issues throughout this one very diverse community, we're talking about gentrification, we're talking about police brutality and racism, and we're talking about, uh, I mean, just racial relations in general. It's, it's, it's very fluid. It never feels like it never feels like it's being too preachy and it's so visceral and real. I was just taken aback by how much this film has not only grown on me, but impacted my life going forward. Because I really didn't think this would be a film that I would love this much when I saw the trailer. Yeah, very uh very much a hidden gem of 2018. It got no Oscar consideration, which is a crime. Um, and I remember Brandon raving about it and I saw it in theaters and this is a very special film when it comes to, um, sort of gentrification being explored in real time between these two friends, one's white, one's black and one, uh, David Diggs sort of realizing like sort of his complicated relationship with his friend, you know, and, it's a beautiful film. I think it uses community well in it. I think it uses like uh, all sorts of other art forms well. I mean, when the, the that rap that he does at the end to the police officer, that that's probably my favorite scene in the movie. You know, um, yeah. The, if you haven't seen Blind Spotting, Blind Spotting, if you <laughs> hey, if you haven't seen Blind Spotting. Go park your car in the Harvard Yard and go check it out, all right? So I'm telling you to do. Go see it. Chris, what do you think about Blind Spot? I 
dig this movie so much. I think one thing that we didn't mention very much is this movie's also fucking hilarious. Yeah. It's such a fun movie to watch. They're so funny. David Diggs and um Raphael R- Casal. Casal. Like they are fantastic what together. And yeah. yeah. Are they making a TV show for Blind yeah, Spotting? That's gonna be so interesting. Yeah, I and Raphael and David are back for to produce or something or working on it. I don't know I if they're, they're working starring. on it. I, I think it's Are they starring? I don't know what it is. If it's a direct sequel or is if it's like a series, mini series sort of remake of it. Right. I think it has the potential. I'm just nervous, you know, because whenever they make something this good, I'm always nervous. It, I know it's with the yeah. real creators and such, but yeah. Yeah. Is Carlos returning to direct? I don't think so. But I think he's okay. executive producing. Okay. Um, but anyway, yeah, I think like, you know, Brandon, you were talking about how this movie is like talking about gentrification, uh, racism, and just like how that's kind of shifted in this modern era. You know, it's less explicit. It's a lot more implied. And there's more like, what's the word? I think it does a great job with talking about microaggressions in, um, you know, in contemporary racism and like how, you know, it hasn't really been like racism hasn't been solved or eviscerated. It's been shifted. It's transformed into this other thing. That like, you know, is just so like, at least in within the context of this film is a lot more subtle. And of course, there are much worse things going on elsewhere. But yeah, that is like talking about this contemporary level that racism has like become. It's so interesting because like, you know, you don't really see that get addressed very often. And another thing is, I think they do a great job of talking about identity politics, about how like, um, you know, you're when you see someone and you make some form of a preconceived judgment on their character based on their skin color and like where you think they're from. Like, and I, you know, that's something I experience every now and then when someone sees me, they don't think I can, you know, sometimes I've felt like people judge the way I behave because of the way I look, but like, I don't behave that way or I behave quite differently from the way you might interpret me um, in behaving. So it's like, you know, I think, it's a great way of showing how identity is shifting so much in this contemporary era. The world is diversifying so much that it's it's almost impossible to tell, you know, um, like who someone is just by looking at them. And it never has been that easy. But it's especially now it's like no one's ever from where you think they are. And everyone grew up in a context that you are not familiar with and you probably have no idea what that's like. I think it's a great film about judgment, great film about all those things. And like, yeah, I I was enamored by this film when I first watched it. Isn't it weird how the world is more interconnected than ever? Um, but and yet, <laughs> and yet we have like a film that like that tackles that idea, and that kind of tackles the same idea we were talking about in our last episode about racial racial bias sensitivity and such. That kind of training, and yeah. you're seeing like it's still difficulty for people to understand that. Not not necessarily our generation, I don't think. But any generation that precedes millennials, because I think I feel like there's this understanding around identity, race, sexuality, etc., that has come to be implied and understood quite directly. And I don't know why that is. I think it's just more accepting by nature. But so true. Did you guys know that Carlos Lopez Estrada is co-directing *Ryan the Last Dragon*? Oh Wait, shit. What? <laughs> yeah wow that's huge i mean that's what it says on letterbox but i had no idea he was co-directing that yeah I it's it's a great summertime or something yeah i thought that. Was yeah a... he directed that but he's also the co-director for that movie i guess yeah chime and alumni are killing it popping off yeah. like 
I mean, yeah, and I mean, like, yeah, Justin Simeon's working on um, Lando. Lando, right? Lando. Yeah, and Stranger Things season four. I don't watch it, but good for them. <laughs> um, Overrated. <laughs> all right, um, great, great final pick, Brandon. Chris, take us into your last pick. All right, well, my final pick. Three of us actually watched this movie together. Mine and Ethan's first time was watching this. We watched it. Brandon showed it to us. It was his movie night. We watched it at your place, Ethan, for Valentine's Day. Oh. <laughs> 2014 film David Fincher, Gone Girl, is my final pick. Okay. Now, cool. Joey. The re- now, why why am I talking about this film? But I think it does a great job of talking about um, so many different things, but like abstraction of truth, perspective, gender roles, marriage relations, um, relationship, contemporary relationships, like how all of this interweaving between all these different concepts is explored is so masterful by Fincher. I think this is no, it's not okay. It's not my favorite of his, but it's what it's definitely a second, his second best. Um, but yeah, I I adore this film. I think it's so well executed, perfectly acted, um, enchanting, and just so you're so engaged throughout it because you're also along for the ride with the mystery of how this is unfolding. Um, everyone is so on point with like did did Aaron Sorkin write this? Uh, it feels like an Aaron Sorkin script I don't in the best he, way, no, in the no, most complimentary no, way possible. All right, but like, yeah, it's it has like fantastic dialogue, great, just like it's so, you know, it just moves like this, and it's just so like interesting to me, like how a film that's really just about a husband and his wife and their the infidelities of their marriage brings out a discussion on so many different things that pervades our society and the way we as humans interact with each other. You know, how do we define what is true? How do we define? Um, like perspective and how does that play into what's true um you know think like marriage and everything like how does how does your relationship change based on things like that and how does the world interpret you based on the images that they see that may not necessarily be an accurate depiction of who you are like i don't know it's like it's almost feels like this film was made by a guy who like really just saw into something that i think I've never been cognizant of, but has always been a part of the way the world works. I think Fincher tapped into something that we've all recognized, but never really registered. Right. Um, Brandon, you're a big fan of this film. Like, what do you have to say about it? Uh, I read the, I've heard the first half of the book and mm. uh, I was trying to read it before the movie came out because I was really anticipating this. It looked great from the trailers. Uh, and I got to the part right before the middle section where we find out something i don't want to spoil it um but when you find out that something it t- turns your whole expectation and thing on your head but i didn't i didn't get to that part in the book so when i went into the movie i was just fuck crazed out of my mind I, my mouth was dropped on the floor it was like as shocked as i was in endgame you know um <laughs> it was just like what this is crazy i can't believe they did this yeah look at that ethan I can't believe you've done this. <laughs> My jaw literally touched the ground, bro. I, I just uh, the 2010s may be a bleak era, but that's because they capture the realities and damages that society has gone through. I think relationships, the evolution of relationships into the 21st century, uh, is very interesting. The way marriage has kind of been this evolving con, like concept with people because some people are like we are the marriage type but then there's a lot of people who are like 
it's that's not i know what my parents went through or i've seen this happen to my friend and that's not cool and like that that sort of abusiveness is kind of on display here from both sides uh and that that's a really fascinating thing to discover because usually it's only one doing the other harm but in this case it's actively both <laughs> Uh, and, and then outside of that, there's that whole notion of Chris. And uh, another reason is this whole notion of truth that there's this fascinating nature of like, once you know, the truth of the film, it's really hard to unsee the way you saw it before, uh, the way you see it from then on, it's kind of like blind spotting in that sense. And that when they face vase, mm-hmm. um, and like can only see a picture one way, one time, they can't see both pictures at the same time. Yeah. And from that perspective onwards, you're like, you're forced to contemplate what truth means, what honesty means, and what relationships mean going forward. And I I just love this film. It's so smart. I've never seen a mystery this enthralling before. Yeah. Um, It's like, sorry, real, real, real quick note for me. I, I just really like, love what you said about how by when you do know what the, the actual truth of what happened throughout this narrative you start to reflect on how you viewed the characters going throughout the story. You start to like, oh my God, I was siding with this guy. I believe that. I believe this. I believe that. Like, like, and then you start to realize like, wow, I am just as much a pawn in like, I, I'm just, as, I'm, I'm as fooled as like the, the people that were like saying shit on TV in the, in this, in the context of the story. Like I really believed things that they said or things that were implied, but never was the real truth. It, it makes you confront your own biases about human beings it and your own really prejudices. Uh, right. I, a lot of films this decade are great at doing that. And I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I agree with everything you guys just said. And I'm just going to quickly say that like the gone girl is a great example of this sort of decades auteurism you know, um, and sort of like how a dire- how a director's visual style like has developed, you know, um, because I feel like a lot, a lot what we see with uh, these sort of newer auteurs that have come from this decade, like, I mean, Fincher's been around since the 90s, in, even earlier than that, you know, in the business, but as a director, like his, his pieces have been around since the 90s, but I feel like he's sort of uh, found a darker and sharper like visual aesthetic that's totally unique to his own that I feel like is very much shown off in this movie, you know? And I think it's a, it's a good poster child. A lot of these tw- 2010s auteurs like, um, you know, Fincher, Denis Villeneuve. That Yorgos. I, yeah, Yorgos Lathmos. Like we haven't seen the end of their careers, you know? we've we're probably either in the mid stages or the beginnings of a lot of them you know and that's something significant about this decade and i think that this this film is a good pick in that aspect all right let me finish this off with my last film no way. um it i think it's a lot it has a lot of what we've already talked about this episode so it this can be just a quick discussion um it's a 2018 film it's a uh, debut feature for director Boots Riley. Uh, it is sorry to bother you. I, I, I thought Chris was going to do that earlier. I'm not going to lie. Really? Yeah, because he was I, describing his movie, and I was like, "Is it? 
sorry to bother you. <laughs> yeah, but then he's like blind spotting. But this, I mean, this year is a lot of what blind spotting was talking about. A lot what Parasite was talking about. You know, a lot what Fruitvale Station was talking about. A lot of stuff that we've already talked about today. Um, I just got to say, I love the way Boots Riley depicts sort of this modern Marxist thought through um, the working class, like a modern working class um, and unionizing. Like I love Stephen Young in this movie, like trying to bring all the workers together to form a union and stuff like that. And Lakeith Stanfield's journey going up like the social ladder by using a white voice, you know, is very powerful. And I just love Boots Riley's style, man. Um, I don't think his second film has come out yet. But I, I just his style is so dreamlike, you know, um, the way he cuts between locations and stuff like that. You, it's hard to explain, but it reminds me a lot of um, movies. Who who directed Tokyo Godfathers? Uh, Masha. I know his last name is Kano, because he did Perfect Blue. It reminded me of Perfect Blue in the way how anime sometimes animates characters in like. A mental state and how they transfer from uh, location to location and I love the score to this film it's a very fucking weird film but I think it's weirdness sort of brings out the absurdity in modern day capitalism and I was just I was so surprised when I saw this film for Satoshi the first time Kano. in 2018 what? Satoshi Kano yeah Satoshi Kano um, yeah great film Blast uh, what do you guys think? Uh, not blind. blind did you say blind spotting? Oh, fuck. <laughs> the reason why, okay, I have my notes here and I was going down our list and I said, uh, blind spotting. What do you guys think? No, sorry <laughs> to bother you. What do you guys think? Uh, I saw this movie in theaters and I remember everybody's discourse around the movie. Yeah. Nobody, in, at least in my theater, loved that movie except for me. They all thought it was super weird and they didn't want to contemplate with the tough realities the film has to face. But I was thinking this is the greatest critique of corporate corporations in the 21st century so far, yeah. like out of any film. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean I agree with it in a lot of manners. I do agree with some of it. But like Ethan and I have very different philosophical points in regards to how to run an economy. However, <laughs> I do agree with him in points about unions and uh, helping people out. And Stephen Yeun doing what he's doing and starting that like revolution within the workplace is quite amazing uh but yeah it's a really interesting and unique film i would say it's america i wish boots riley could do more but he kind of said fuck you to the hollywood system so that's like mm -hmm. that's kind of difficult for him to make more films like this but right. he's like an, a, a, a modern surrealist right he yeah. reminds me a lot of uh one of my favorite directors uh luis buñuel who did a lot oh, yeah. of films in France and Spain in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s that were sort all about... Sort a child for the movement. A, yeah, society, aristocracy, and, you know, a, a bunch of different things. So I, I, I get a lot of that sense. And though the ending is batshit crazy, there's so <laughs> much you can take from it. So much. Yeah. A another great director of visual metaphors with his the weird developments of that film you know mm -hmm. the ending is just yeah chris have you seen sorry to bother you no i actually have not oh, i the fact but oh, now that we've had this conversation yeah you guys you guys basically pitched me this whole movie mm -hmm. and i don't know anything about how this the movie's ending or anything like that i yeah. just know um two things one i love the concept 
the the alternate reality, the telemarketing, the the voice thing, and all that. That's like Stephen Yun. So, one of your favorites. And yeah, I was about to say Stephen Yun and Lakeith Stanfield in one movie. I didn't know that existed. Yeah. So and that sounds great. I feel like that's a pairing. Like that is a, that's a like I haven't even seen it, but I can imagine if they share a scene, their chemistry is probably kind of good. Chris. Oh yeah. You're gonna love both the script and the visuals of this movie. I yeah. already know. I've seen the visuals. I, I've referenced the visuals before. And in, he hasn't seen um, the movie. Before. I haven't seen the movie. I've seen the visuals. I used it in BuddyBot. Leave me alone. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, I'm very intrigued. And like just the idea, honestly, it's the idea that Steven, Yen and Lakeith are together. That sounds like, that's a Chris Tucker, Jackie Chan duo if I ever seen one <laughs> that I would love to see happen. Is that racist? And Army Hammer's in it, I'm, and he's batshit crazy. <laughs> it's probably my favorite, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Best, best performance of all time. Just the Lone Ranger. Yeah, I'm, I'm joking. Terry <laughs> Crews is in this. Yep, Terry yep. Crews is Lakeith's uncle. It's so. I great. gotta see this movie. Holy Patton shit! You gotta Oswald, watch it. Tessa Thompson. ASAP. Tessa. Danny Thompson. Glover, Patton Oswalt. Yep. David Cross, Danny Glover. Yeah, you said Danny Glover. There's a lot of people in that movie. That's oh. I would love to rewatch that movie with you, Chris, honestly. Me too. Would you wait okay. for January? Yeah, I'll wait. I'll wait. Yeah. I can wait. Okay. Hell yeah. Cool. All right. Well, there's well, all of our films, we? everyone. Let's run down. This is another no double stacks. We almost had one with Parasite, but Brandon changed his mind. Almost had one on Bellline Spotting as well. I changed my mind for that. Brandon oh, and I almost had a double double. <laughs> but we both changed our minds. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, then before we break down what our final sack's going to be. Let's run through again. Brandon, kick us off. First performed, Snowpiercer, Blind Spotting. Mine were Parasite, Fruitvale Station, and Gone Girl. <laughs> and mine was The Avengers, sort of the black sheep of this podcast. <laughs> uh, Tangerine, and Sorry to Bother You. <laughs> you have the, you have this exploration of culture and race and and like eco- economy and political yeah. and stuff. And then you've got this like cultural phenome- phenomenon that is like just des- definitely determined the future of the industry, but does not fit at all. Yeah. That <laughs> yeah, like tonally or anything. So it's it's it's, it's pivotal for the generation in a different way yeah so then do we want to make a stack that's sort of more specific in one aspect of the 2010s or do we want to be a lot more broad i think that's what i was thinking i have no idea i want to blend blend things (laughs) brand has his eyes closed and he's wiggling his fingers around I would like to blend things. Okay, here's what That's I mean by that. Here's Brandon when he works at a Jamba Juice. <laughs> I, or Starbucks. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think, like, blending... We've got films that tackle race. We need to choose at least one, um, I think. And then we should do the same with, like, either religion or classism or a mixture of the two. And And then you could have a film that is very progressive in another way. Like I'm talking about regions of thought and the, the way we've changed over uh, over the course of the decade, essentially, and where we are going forward, right? So like, for example, I'm not going to say this is our final stack or anything, but just as mm-hmm. a pitch, like First Reformed is this very religious and political film that tackles the environmental aspects of society going forward. Then you've got something like "Sorry to Bother You," which tackles very much the uh, uh, the e- economics and politics and social movements going forward. 
And then you've got something more centered specifically around like something like blind spotting or fruit veil station, carrying us forward into like the racial and social, uh, social era going forward. So in that sense, you kind of get a taste of all three, but yet all three are very different films. Like they don't, yeah. they aren't necessarily dramas. They're not necessarily comedy. Some straddle the line and some are just like completely original. So something like that, I think is yeah. probably should pitch it, hmm. which means Let's no see. Avengers, unfortunately. That's <laughs> I mean, but that's a big aspect of movies in the 2010s. But it is, okay. but it just feels wrong. <laughs> I know it just feels wrong having in the stack, but I don't, okay, it's you a decade. Feels so we're wrong about. that it is right. Let's put it. Yes, in. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, is there anybody anybody that has a film that they think needs to be on the stack? I will. I mm, personally, I, I think Paris. I think Parasite <laughs> should be on here. Parasite. I think I would be great with Parasite and Blind Spotting. Sort of Parasite being this more uh, classist uh, narrative of the 2010s, and then Blind Spotting being sort of a little also classist but more racial. You know. Um, yeah, and I also think like Parasite has like a racial side to it in the sense of like the industry and the impact it has on it. Yeah, because it proves something. Yeah, it's significant in that in that regard. Then I'd want to put um, first reformed or sorry to bother you personally. What about Tangerine? I just haven't seen it, so it's hard for me to comment on it, especially because, like, I've seen Sean Baker's other film, but like, as as like Tori shared with you, I mean, there is like some aspects mm-hmm. of the film yeah. that maybe aren't right. Okay, you know, and like otherwise, I would be totally on board with that idea because ta- the idea of queerness in modern cinema. Maybe if we had picked something like Portrait of a Lady, but that technically was this year, right? I wanted to put Moonlight on my list. But we've already used it for the coming of age, so I couldn't. Yeah, and Portrait was 2019. As you know, yeah, Portrait was 2019. Yeah. Interesting. Mm, okay. Well. Should we lock in two of them? Let's lock in. Should we lock in? Uh... Chris, what do you think? Well, I have a proposal. Oh, yeah. Cool. Um, Thanks, what if we did... Daddy? Um, hang on one second. Um <laughs> God, this is okay. I got it. Um, I th- okay. Wait, this might sound ignorant of me, but in "Sorry to Bother You," is Lakeith being a black a black person? Is that a significant part of its narrative? Like, is is it a film tackling racial issues? Absolutely. Okay. So, with that said, I'm wondering, like, what if we come? What if we did this? Parasite, First Reformed, and Sorry to Bother You. I think those tackle three tenets of what defined the 2010s very well. Parasite being social economics, first reform being religion, corporate corporation and environmentalism. Yeah. Sorry to bother you, race relations and corporation as well. Okay. Um, And many more, but I don't, yeah, I don't know very much about that movie. No, you're right. And I think they kind of blend well together. Like if you start with first reformed, you can move into sorry to bother you. And if he's, and then sorry to bother you is like a perfect transition into parasite. Yeah. You feel interestingly, the stack is only in the last two years, the decade. This is what I said at the beginning of the (laughs) great couple years, great couple years. I'm not saying these films. I mean, it kind of makes sense because they're more retrospective of the decade, you know? Mm-hmm. meaning okay let's do it let's do it how are we going to order this thing that's the order first reforms for it to bother you parasite yes i think okay 
Sounds good. Which movie would be the worst to be intoxicated to watch? All of them. The best. Which one's I think Parasite would be fun to watch intoxicated. Parasite might be. Yeah, I think First Reformed might be really tough. Yeah, that would be tough because you're just like, fuck, fuck, fuck this world, <laughs> guys, fuck guys, my life. No, 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 no. You guys, it's like Evangelion. It's like the same thing. Also, yeah, I would say fuck this world, fuck my life if I watch yeah. Evangelion. No, me? I think. I think if you watch First Reformed High, you'd find new appreciation for the the floating scene. <laughs> I would get scared by it. Probably, yeah. Honestly, yeah, I would probably find you appreciated for it. But <laughs> okay. also, um, no, sorry to bother you. Would be kind of fun, but it's also really Chris. There's something in the third act you don't want to witness. High. Oh, I I want to see Chris's reaction to that. Chris, don't okay. look up anything about this movie because I want yeah, to see I won't. you. I, I'm not gonna look what up your anything. Thoughts are on it. Okay, what are you? This is another unique, like list of three. Yeah, figures. but I love this list. It's a very holistic list. I think. Yeah. Okay, let's run it down of stacks official quintessential films of the 2010s. Brandon, kick us off with our first film. Ah, uh, yes, our first film today is First Reformed, a great account of how religion and faith has been altered by mass media and the idea that the environment and corporations are also changing before our very eyes. Wonderful movie, depressing movie. Just watch it. And our next film is Boots Riley's debut feature, Sorry to Bother You. Um, what I de- believe is a quintessential uh, modern Marxist piece of art um, that depicts sort of uh, the modern worker's struggle and how they want to overcome these struggles and by sort of taking by sort of exploring this corrupt system and exploring how people are trying to solve that this corruption sorry about you and our final film is a 2019 film directed by bong joon ho uh winning best picture and the first non-english film to win best picture in the history of the oscars it is parasite a incredible film detailing the story of two families on opposite ends of the economic spectrum as they fight for um, their place in the world. And um, you begin to deconstruct how the economic ladder works and is the, one of the most entertaining and thought-provoking films of the of this decade. And there it is, everyone. There is the stack. I hope you check out, honestly, all of these films. We talked about a wide variety, especially me. <laughs> with avengers but uh i think all of these films are quite excellent and i encourage you all to once again watch them and like i said last episode let me know what you're what you think are the greatest films of the 2010s like which one stood out to you the most let us know in on any social media or in the comments below on youtube and uh yeah boys that'll be it what are you laughing at no we don't care Oh, we don't care? Yeah, I don't care. Bye.